Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And as I shared with you a few months ago, what I want to do for at least a little while now, not forever, but for a little while is whenever we celebrate the Lord's table together, which is what we're going to do today, is to spend the day focused on it so that we don't just tuck it in at the end without reverence for it. And as we go through these scriptures we talked about last week, I believe you'll see why. Not last week, but the last time we did this. And we'll do this for a few times, and then we may go back to what we were doing before and then come back to this. We'll just see. It all depends on kind of where I sense our hearts are towards this. And I know I was doing this. I was beginning to kind of take this for granted. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll read what the Apostle Paul writes about what we're going to do today. We'll start in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner also or eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick, and many sleep. That means die. And if, For if we should judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we're chastened by the Lord that we may be, not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brother, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. For the rest I will set in order when I come. What we talked about last time is this attitude towards the Lord's table. And what you see in these verses is it's a very serious matter because he talks about the fact that there were many in this congregation, this church that he's writing this to, that were weak. Now, it may be physically weak, it may be spiritually weak. There are many that were sick. And he said there are some that have even died. Why? Because they had the wrong attitude towards the Lord's table. Wow, you don't hear that very often. So obviously it's very serious, the view that we have it. Not to be afraid of it, but to take it seriously. And so we talked last time about realizing this is the Lord's table. This is something He has prepared for this. This is something He's told us to do. And therefore, we need to have the same reverence for this that we have for Him, the same respect for it, the same honor for it that we have for Him. We're going to look at a particular part of it today because it's part of honoring it and respecting it is understanding it. And so many of us have maybe a little bit of understanding. Some of us may have no understanding. Many of us have come, you've come from traditions where you couldn't even do all of it. You could only eat part of it. You could only eat the bread. And it was something that was done all the time, but you may not understand why it's done. And one of the, one of the purposes of the ministry gift of a teacher is to give us understanding. And that's what I am, I'm a teacher, is to give us understanding. And with understanding, we can value and receive more what it is that God has for us. So we're going to take a look at a particular aspect of this this morning. And I want to tell you how this came off in me because a number of months ago, um, I just really felt the Lord impress upon me for my wife and I, Anita and I, every morning to begin to take communion together. Not begin to take communion together every morning. I'm not saying it was everybody need to do. It wasn't because we were in any trouble. I really felt the Lord wanted to bind us closer together. 
wanted to have both of us have an awareness of how he sees our marriage, that we've been joined together in a covenant together. Not just we love each other, not just we're attracted to each other, not just we're committed to each other, but it's deeper than that. It's a binding blood covenant. And in the process of praying together while we do this, these verses came back to me, and I really sense that means that the Lord wants us to understand what this is really about. So go back, and we're going to look in verse uh, 23, excuse me, 24 and 25. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. That's the bread. And he, this is what he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Now that doesn't mean that the piece of bread he had turned into his body any more than the piece of bread you're going to eat later on turns into his body. And you'll see what he means by this, I think, as we go into this and some other things we'll teach later on. Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup, now this is what I want to look at today, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What he's telling them here is as often as you eat this bread, this communion bread, this, this covenant is a covenant meal. As often as you do this, I want you to remember something about me. And I know we understand what we remember is that his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. But there's more than that he's saying here. He's not just saying, remember, remember I died for you, I paid a price for you. He is saying that, but there's more in this because he said, this blood, I want you to remember, this is the blood of the new covenant. So he's invoking a covenant here. And then he goes on to say, and we'll probably look at this next time, he says, and I want, by doing this, you're remembering or you're reminding yourself and you're reminding me of this covenant by eating this bread. And so that's what we're going to take a look at today. What is this new covenant that we're being reminded of? What is this new covenant? Well, if it's a new one, then it must be replacing an old one. And obviously, one of the old covenants that it replaces is the covenant that God entered into with the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. And we'll see references to that in our study today. But it's more than that. So would you turn with me back to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. And while you're turning there, or even when you get there, I want to explain something to you about covenants. Now, there's a course I used to teach course I used to teach in the, um, uh, am I right now? Thank you. <laughs> I saw my wife talking to Pastor Michael, and he's doing things like this, and I want to make sure, first of all, I got pants on, and then, you know, the basic stuff, and then it's the, it's the fine refinements to make sure... I got my dignity back. <laughs> You'll have to edit that out of the TV. <laughs> Where was I? <laughs> oh, there's a course I teach in the school of ministry for years on the blood covenant. 
and I've taught it here on Wednesday nights, and I may teach it again uh, next year sometime. And it's the basic understanding is that we're going to crash course in it right now. Covenants are an old institution created among different families, different tribes, different nations. Um, and the purpose of a covenant was to create some certainty in human dealings. Now, we ought to be able to trust each other's word. And there was a time when people could take one another. Your word was your bond. But we all know that you can't do that anymore. And this is not the first time in history that's ever happened. And so what people learn to do is to cover themselves in a way so that if, how do I know you're going to do for me what you said you're going to do? And so one of the ways of doing that was they would enter into a covenant with each other. A covenant is more than a contract. A contract is where you just exchange promises. I promise to do something for you, and you promise to do something for me, or I promise to do something to you, and you promise to pay me for what I promise to do. That's a contract. But a covenant is where something else is given along with the promise as security for it. And those of you who own houses know what I'm talking about because you have a mortgage in most likely. And when you signed your papers, one of the first pieces of paper you signed was a promissory note. That was giving your word you were going to pay them back. But as much as they did a search on, much as they did a, a, a credit check on you, as much as they like you and you have a nice, honest face, they didn't trust your word alone. They made you sign another piece of paper called a mortgage, where you basically give them title to your house until you fulfill your promise. So something was given to them along with your promise to give them security or certainty that you were going to keep your promise. And that's really the idea behind a covenant. That's what makes a covenant different than a contract or just an exchange of promises. Now, there are all different types of covenants based on what was given as the commitment, as the guarantee for the covenant. In some cases, it was a partnership. In some cases, it was a business covenant where things were pledged or talents were pledged or things were pledged to one another. But the highest, the most serious, the most solemn type of covenant was a blood covenant. And in that blood covenant, and I'll go through you with you in a moment, what was done to enter into that covenant, but the essence of it was that by giving, the covenant involved the exchange of blood somehow. And in the Bible and in society, old ancient societies, the significance of the blood was your life. In Leviticus 17 it says, for the life is in the blood, which is why the Jews were forbidden to drink blood, because they were taking into them the life of another, except Jesus said we're to drink his blood. We're to take his life into him, not his literal blood. But the point is this, a blood covenant was the highest type of covenant because what you pledged to back your word was not your house, it was not your livestock, you literally pledged your life as the guarantee that you would keep your word, which means that if you didn't keep your word, the person you pledged it to was entitled to forfeit your life, or you had to forfeit your life. So it was the highest, most solemn type of covenant. It's that type of covenant that the marriage covenant is based on. It is an exchange of life. So there are three basic things that was involved by the fact that it was a blood covenant because it meant the giving of your life. First of all, it was a complete exchange of assets and liabilities. So whatever you owned and whatever you owed now became owned and owed by the person or the people, the family or the tribe that you entered into a covenant with. 
because the essence of covenant is our lives are now joined together. Well, if our lives are joined together, our assets are joined together, our liabilities are joined together. So when Anita and I were married 46 and a half years ago, all our assets and liabilities were combined together because we were now one. Another aspect of covenant is that meant we have, you, in a covenant you now have a claim on each other. You have a claim on each other for whatever you need, any time or day. And that was one of the reasons they would enter into it. Sometimes you would bring in the covenants a mutual need together. You may have one, one tribe or one family that had, had, all, all, had the water. They had the water stream in the, in the ponds or the lake or whatever it was. And the other family may have had, had, had grazing land. So you would enter into a covenant so you would share your water with their, with their and, and they would share their grazing land. In some cases it may be for protection, for whatever the reason was, but in a blood covenant it was a, it was a sharing of everything. That means whatever I have you have a right to any time of day or night and you don't have to give any explanation. You have a right to it because we're, we're one and the same with you. So it means there's a claim that we have, you have on each other. It means that, that there's a total commitment of all your assets and all your liabilities. And the ultimate thing is it means you're one. Your identities are exchanged. Now in order to enter into this, they had to do something that would communicate exactly what it meant and how solemn it was. And we use ceremonies now. The ceremony doesn't, doesn't last. You just end up with pictures. But the ceremonies intended to leave with you in your senses an impression of what it is that you're doing, that you're not just, you know, casually coming together. So a marriage ceremony has the idea that it is communicating to you and to, to, to the people that are around you that, that you are literally entering into a covenant. And the marriage ceremony that I do is literally a covenant ceremony where you're entering into a covenant. And if we understood that, we would have far fewer divorces. If you understood that when you join together, this is why God takes divorce so seriously. If you look in Malachi, this is why God hates divorce. And I'm not condemning anybody, but God hates divorce because it's the breaking of a covenant. It's the breaking of a covenant. And covenant is solemn to Him. It's sacred to Him. Now, at the time we're going to look at in Genesis 15, these things were very common. So Abram that we're going to look at, who was we've studied before, Abram was a man from Chaldea. He was a pagan. Their country, he worshipped the moon. They were moon worshippers. And God has already spoken to him in chapter 12, saying, I'm going to bless you. And as I bless you, eventually the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And anybody that blesses you, I bless. But anybody that curses you, I curse. In other words, I'm going to treat other people on the basis of how they treat you because I've chosen you to bless you. Now, we've been studying, we've been looking as we're going through worship and we're looking at, at God's desire to be among us. We're, we've seen that, that God chose this man in order to have a special relationship with them. But in order to communicate to this man, who used to, the, only, the only God he's ever known is the moon, and the moon never talked to him, unless he had too much to drink the night before. But the moon never talked to him, because the moon's not out. I don't want to burst your bubble, but there's, right now there's not a man in the moon. All right? There's not a face up there. It's not alive. They've gone and found that out, and they brought back reports. Most of us have seen TV shows, if we're old enough, that there's nobody alive up there unless we send them there and bring them back. All right? So it's, he worships something that wasn't real. I mean, it's real, but it wasn't a person. It wasn't a real God. And now the true and living God comes to introduce himself. And, you know, it's hard for us to imagine what a jolt that must have been to him for God to speak to him. So God has to 
get across this barrier that he's talking to a man that doesn't even know he exists and is trying to communicate to this man he can trust him. So in Genesis 12, God says, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless people that bless you and I'm going to curse people that curse you. I'm going to treat everybody on the basis of how they treat you. And through you, I want to bless the nations of the world. Well, now we go over to chapter 15 and God speaks to him again. And that's what we're going to pick up on here. And after these things, which is in part what we've just talked about, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And he said, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I am your shield and exceeding great reward. Now, we may not understand what that means here, but he's got to say, I am, I am, I'm not giving you a shield. I am your shield. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, I am your shield. Now, the, cer- the ceremony that they would go through to enter a covenant had a number of basic things in it. it didn't, they didn't always use all of them, but they had a number of basic things in them. One of the things that they would do is they would exchange weapons. They would exchange their shields or their swords. And if you look in the story of David and Jonathan, you'll see they enter into a covenant, most likely a blood covenant, and they do. They exchange shields and swords. They exchange things. And the shield and the sword represented the commitment to, I will defend you at all costs, even with my life. And the sword meant I'm giving you my strength, I'm giving you my my ability to do things, my warlike ability. They would also often exchange their outer cloak because the cloak in those days, your outer coat, often represented your identity. That's why why, uh, Joseph's brothers got so offended because his father gave him a coat that was different than theirs. So it signified that, that... his, their father saw something about him, an identity about him, that was special more than the other brothers. And so that created resentment. So the cloak often represents your personality. So they would exchange coats, outer coats, representing an exchange of who they are, their personality. It always involves somewhere the cutting of the body and the, the shedding of blood. Now, sometimes it wasn't their blood, it may be the blood of an animal. But it would involve that, and sometimes it would involve, and you've heard of, you know, uh, uh, children doing this, they cut their wrists and they put, or they put their blood together and the idea is my life is now flowing in your veins and your life is now flowing in my veins. Sometimes in pagan societies they would drink each other's blood and they would do this as a, as a group. If it was a large group you might have a representative doing it for you. So the entire families of each side wasn't doing this. They would appoint usually the head of the family to go through this ritual in front of everybody. So they'd have one family or one tribe on one side and the other on the other, and the representatives would come out and they would go through this ceremony. Another thing that they would do is they would often take animals from each family or each tribe, and they would cut them right down the middle and lay the halves open. Well, you can only imagine the amount of blood that that created. And then the representatives would lock arms and they would walk in a figure-eight pattern through the divided halves, through the path of the blood, which was often known as the way. Some of you are ahead of me already. And so this was to signify that the two were now one and that it was the, the giving of the life that did that. And there were other things that they would go through. Let me just check my list here because it's been a while since I've taught it to not totally trust in my memory. They would exchange names often. 
And, and, and so you, and, and this is what happened when we got married. She took my name as, a sign, as signifying to the world that we're now one. Her identity, the way she's called even by her parents, was no longer with her maiden name. It was now signifying that we were now one together. So they would exchange names with each other. And then when it was done, they would commemorate it with something. Sometimes they might build an altar, which was a reminder to them every time they saw this pile of stones or every time they saw this, 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 this particular, whatever it was they used, it was a reminder that they were in covenant with each other. And when we got married, we exchanged rings as a sign that we belong to each other and to sign to everyone else that sees me or sees her that I belong to somebody. You may not know who it is, but I'm in a covenant union with somebody and that she is also. So it was a sign. But then what they would do at the end as a celebration of it and a reminder of it is they would share in a covenant meal where they would have food together, but often they would have bread and they would have wine. Those were the two most common elements that they would have in the meal that celebrated. It wasn't the entering of the covenant, but it was a celebration of what they'd done. Now that's a crash course, about two weeks worth of teaching in the course, just to bring you up to speed for what we're about to read. So remember now, God is entering into one of these blood covenants with a man. Think about that a second. Man had done this for years, but now God, God, think about it, God whose word he cannot violate, God who cannot lie, God who can't change his mind, God's word is the foundation on which everything exists. The authority and the, the reliability of God's word God's now coming to a man. He should never have to justify himself. He should never have to prove that his word has to, can be trusted by entering into some ceremony. But he's, his goal isn't to prove what he can do. His goal is to communicate to the man, you can trust me. And so what God is going to do as we go through this, God is going to go through the parts of a ceremony with this man to communicate... I promised this to you, but I want to prove to you that my word is true because I'm going to humble myself and enter into a blood covenant with you. So when God says to Abram, I am your shield and I am your reward, God doesn't have a shield to take off the wall and hand to him. So God says, I am your shield. He doesn't have a reward to give him. He says, I am your reward. I'm giving myself to you. Let's read on because it gets better. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. But Abram says, now see, Abram's catching on here because he said, Lord, God, what will you give me? In other words, what am I going to get out of this? seeing that I go childless in the air of my house as Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, the one born of my house is not my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, the one who is, that This one shall not be your heir, but one who shall come from your own body shall be your heir. Then God takes him out and shows him the stars of the sky to expand his vision for what God wants to do for him. Verse 6. 
And he believed in the Lord, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Then he, God, said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of Chaldea to give this land to you to inherit. And he said, Lord, how do I know that I'll inherit? In other words, God, how do I know I can trust you? God just said, I'm bringing you out. I've given this land to you. And Abram's saying, how do I know that I can trust that you, what you've said is true? Now, God will accept that to a point because he, he knows where you are. But there's a point where God expects you because you do know better. If you start going backwards in your faith, God won't go back there with you. He requires you to, He'll treat you on where He knows you are. But this man had no basis for knowing whether he could trust God or not. So here's God just said several times, I'm going to give you an heir. And Abram says, how do I know that I can take you at your word? And look at God's answer. God doesn't say, because I'm God. Because <laughs> I created all this. Because I can't lie. No. Verse 9. So God said to him, Bring to me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he, Abram, brought all these to him, God, and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. Now vultures came down in verse 11, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a horror and darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for a certainty that your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not yours. That's Egypt. And they will serve them, but, and they will afflict them for 400 years. But also, and also the nations whom they've served, I will judge afterwards, and they shall come out with great possessions. That's the Exodus. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down, remember those two, the halves of the animals were separated there. When it came to pass that when the sun went down, it was dark. Behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between these pieces. Now Abraham's in a deep sleep. Now, God can't link arms with Abraham and walk through the pieces. Because if he did that, Abraham would die. We've talked about that before. So God has to do this in a vision, in a dream. And in the dream, God and Christ, they're represented by the torch and the, and the lamp, together pass through in this figure-eight pattern these pieces. This is to communicate to Abraham that God is entering into a blood covenant with him. Because God can't cut his wrist. God can't take Abraham by the arm. God can't take off his coat. God, but God's doing these things in a representative fashion so that Abraham, or Abram still at the point is, knows what he's doing and understands. Okay, we've got to move on. Verse 18. And on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river Euphra Egypt to the great river Euphrates. All right, now let's go over to chapter 17. This is still God entering into covenant. When Abram, was 90, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the Lord Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. 
And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of many nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. And for I have made you the father of many nations. A number of weeks ago I talked about this. The, the primary root name of God is Yah. For us, Y-A-H. And God is taking Abram, A-B-R-A-M, and dividing the name in the middle and taking the last two letters of his name, Yah, and sticking it in the middle of it and calling him Ahaham. So God is giving his name to Abram. If you read on, you'll find out he did the same with his wife, Sarai. Because he took the end of her name, he says, she'll no longer be called Sarai, but Sarah. So he took the last letters of his, her name and added the last two letters of his name to her name. And as I shared before you, it gets better. So God gave his name and therefore his identity to Abram. But there's another side to that exchange. Because God also took Abraham's name and now took that as his own. Because from this point on, God refers to him as I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. The God who belongs to Abraham. The God who belongs to Abraham. God, the creator of the universe said, my identity is now eternally linked to this man. I'm no longer just known as Yah, God. I am the God of Abraham. Nobody else could say that. I am the God of Abraham. God elsewhere refers to himself as the friend of Abraham. That doesn't mean that they were buddies and hung out together. The word friend there is a covenant term. It means combined and committed together. All right. Let's go over to chapter 22. Oh, I'm going to read on here. There's something else you have to see. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant between you and your descendants after you to be an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And then go verse 9. And this is my covenant that shall keep between me and you and your children descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And he goes on to explain who to do that to and how to do that. So the circumcision was now the mark of the covenant. It was now the mark of the covenant. What made a Jewish male different from every other male on the earth is that he'd been circumcised. And it required a cutting that required the shedding of blood. It was a mark. A mark. Oh, I forgot to tell you. When they cut a covenant, one of the things, the way they would cut it was either on the palm of the hand, the forehead, or on their chest somewhere so that somebody seeing them would realize they've entered into a covenant with somebody. Somewhere there was a mark on their body or there was something they wore that was a sign that they were in covenant with somebody else. So if you're going to mess with me, you better figure out who I'm in covenant with. Because to mess with me is to mess with the one I'm in covenant with. And so the covenant, this doesn't, this doesn't create the covenant, this is the mark of the covenant. This is the sign that he is in covenant, blood covenant with God. Now go to Genesis 22. Yeah, this is a crash course. But it's, it's what we need for what we're gonna go, where we're going to go. Now we enjoy the covenant because the covenant now means that whoever I'm one with... Now think about this. 
A covenant means when we got married, all my assets and liabilities were now hers, and all her assets and liabilities were now mine. And we were about even in that. Some of you weren't. <laughs> God's entered into a covenant with Abram. That means all of Abraham's assets and liabilities are now God's. Are you ready for this? All of God's assets and liabilities are now Abram's. Now, you don't have to be too slick to figure this one out. Who's getting the better end of that deal? Do you think Abram conned God out? No, God knew just what he was doing. God wanted Abraham to have the better end of the deal. So all of God's assets and liabilities are now Abram's. Or Abraham's. And all of Abraham's assets and liabilities are now God's. Genesis 22. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, and he said, here I am. Now what's happened is God has fulfilled his promise and after 25 years, Abram now has this son and he's grown up. So it's, we're long, talking quite a few years. He's grown up and he's now a young man. And in the course, of course, Abraham's fallen in love. This is the child God made clear. Look, this is the one I want you to have because Abram tried to help God. And he and Sarah came up with a scheme by which they created their own child together and presented him to God for God to bless. And God didn't bless that child. God says, no, it's going to be done because you received this covenant and you believe my word and you took me at my word and my word's going to produce a child in you. And this is that child. And now God says this thing, this startling thing to him. Take your son, verse 2, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham hemmed and hawed and went and got all kinds of counsel because this couldn't possibly have been God. No, that's not what it says. He rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey took two of his men with him, and Isaac his son split the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place which God had told him. God's saying, this child I've given to you, this blessing that I blessed you with, I want him back. Now remember, they're in a blood covenant together. And it's wonderful when we think of everything God has is, his, is ours, but the other side of that is everything we have is His. And God's saying, I'm, he's testing him. He's testing the covenant. He's testing where Abraham is in the covenant. Notice he didn't do it right away. He waited until he grew in faith. He wait, and he says, I want that son I've given you back. And I want you to take him and I want you to offer him as a burnt sacrifice to me on that altar. That doesn't mean I'm gonna, I want him by having you send him to the mission field. I want you to lay him on an altar Take a knife, plunge it into his heart, and then burn the whole thing up. And Abraham gets up early the next morning to obey him. Now, if you go over to Hebrews 11, what you'll find out is Abraham did... With, see, th this is somewhat inconsistent with what God's told him. God's told him and made clear to him, through this boy, you're going to be the father of many nations. See the stars? They're going to come through this boy. And now before this boy's married, before he's had any children, God's saying, I want him back. And the way I want him back is I want you to kill him and burn his body up. 
But Abraham is not moved by the fact that these two things seem to be somewhat in conflict with each other. You see where they're in conflict? God's, Abraham's trust God to the point where he leaves that issue with God. All he's concerned with is obeying God. I'll obey you. You straighten the, the issue out. If I obey you, you're going to do it. Because I'm in covenant with you, how that gets worked out is your business. It's the reason sometimes God can't do things in our lives is we're in His business. We're trying to do His work. And we're trying to get Him to do our part. He won't do our part, and you can't do His. That happens when we pray for people. We pray for relatives to get saved, and then we try to manipulate them. That's doing the work of the Holy Spirit. Only He can get in their hearts. Only He can open their eyes. Only He can remove the veil. We're to pray. We're to pray and believe God's doing what we've asked Him to do. We're to continue to stand and trust God. That's our role. God's role is to work in their hearts. But our human flesh, we want to do both roles... And, when we're, and you know, when we're manipulating, we're probably not trusting. So we're not really praying. So we're having God do our part and trying to do His part. Believe me, I've tried it. It doesn't work. So Hebrews 11, in Hebrews 11, we're not going to turn there, but it says, Abraham believed that if necessary, God would raise him back from the dead. How God fulfilled this promise was His business. He just knew God was going to do it. So therefore, he could trust God and do the very thing God said to him in spite of the fact that it looked like he was losing everything. Say, God would never do that. Yeah, He will. He'll do it with the talents He gives you. God will often give you talents. He'll give you abilities. He'll give you opportunities. And then He'll want them back. Because He wants to know that you know they're His and not yours. He wants you to know He gave them to you for His purposes, not for you to use for your purposes. He wants to know that He's first in your life. He wants to know that He's in a covenant with you. He wants to know that He tested Abraham to see if Abraham was willing to fork out the fullness of this covenant. And you and I are going to be very glad that he did because look what happens. They get up there and of course on the way up the mountain, the boy says, Father, I see the wood, I see the fire, but there's one thing missing here. I don't see the animal for the sacrifice. Look what Abraham says. He says it over in verse um, 8. And Abram said, My son, God will provide for himself. Literally it says, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So the two went on together. And of course, you know the story. They came to the place. He built the, he built the, the altar. He laid his son on that altar. Well, let's read it. Then he came to the place where God told him, and Abram built an altar there and placed the wood on the altar. You know, we're talking about Abram's faith, but think about Isaac's faith. Think about Isaac's faith and his father's faith. And he bound Isaac, his son, and he laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham's, you know, Abraham... Isaac was willing to obey his father and trust his father when he probably couldn't understand it. But because he was willing to obey his father and trust his father, 
God is able to not only save his life, but God then enters into a covenant with Isaac. So your destiny, young people, your destiny in God is often tied to your, your, your trust in your parents' faith. They may know things you don't know. They may see things you don't see. God may have shown them things, because God didn't show this to Isaac. He showed this to Abraham. So Isaac had faith in his father's faith, which means parents, our children, have to see our faith in action. They have to have something to put their faith in. Verse 10, Abram stretched out his hands and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abram, he said, Abram, Abram, he says, here I am. He said, do not slay, lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear or reverence God since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now I know, now I know you're full partner in this covenant. Because you've not held anything back from me. I've now not held anything back from you. Now understand this, in a covenant... Each side's responsible for meeting the need of the other. God's saying, my need right now is I need to know that I'm first. I need your son back. So Abraham was willing to put his God above his son and give his son back to God. And parents, we need to be willing to do that. Otherwise, your child is your God. Now Abraham has a need. He needs something on that altar to take the place of his son. And he's already said by faith, God will provide. And so the angel says, look up and there's a ram caught in a thicket. Take that ram and offer that ram on the sacrifice. Now, get this picture. While Abraham and Isaac are going up one side of this mountain, that ram's wandering around the other side. So while you're going to that place that looks like a sacrifice, God's provision is on its way there and will be there right on time. So God, Abraham obeyed God. He obeyed his side of the covenant and now God's duty bound, duty bound by this covenant to meet his need. Oh, this gets good. This gets really good. You ready for how good this really gets? Because then Abraham, of course, Abraham was like us. He committed sin. There was going to come a point in history where Abraham needed someone, a son, to die in his place. And because Abraham was obedient on his end of the covenant, God was duty-bound to take his son and offer him on a sacrifice not a pile of wood, but on a wooden cross. In Abraham's place, and we're going to see in a minute, through Abraham for you and me. You ready for this? Go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter There's more in here we could read, but we're going to start in verse 13. 
For Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles in Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The ultimate blessing that God was promising Abraham was not his riches and his provisions, although that's part of it. The ultimate blessing God was offering to Abraham was himself. He was giving him self. And here Paul refers, talks about that the blessing of Abraham might come upon us, the Gentiles. And what is that blessing? That we might receive the Spirit of God. Well, what is the Spirit of God? It's God's presence in us. It's the union, the joining of us together with God. When you came to Christ, the Bible teaches us, you were joined to Christ. Well, how were you joined to Him? Was your body attached to Him? So wherever you go, He's like a Siamese twin to you? No, He's a spirit. And your real part of you is a spirit. The part of you that He was joined to was your spirit man. And the glue, the connection was the Holy Spirit when He came inside of you. He not only made you alive unto God, but He was God's presence in you. He is, and now, whereas the... The cutting of the skin, the, the mark of the circumcision was the physical mark on their body to prove that they were in covenant with God. The new mark of the new covenant is not on your body because that you leave here. The new mark on you is in the spirit realm where Satan can see it, where the angels can see it. And that mark, the Bible says, is the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. God sees that spirit in you. He knows you belong to Him. The devil sees that spirit in you. He knows you belong to Him. So we've been marked, not in our physical body, we've been marked in our spirit being by the presence of God. Remember when Moses said, if your spirit doesn't go with us, we're not going to go, because how will the nations of the world know we belong to you unless your presence goes with us? Well, how is the world going to know we belong to Christ unless His presence is in us? Oh, this gets better. Verse 15, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it's only a man's covenant, yet if it's confirmed, no one annuls it or adds to it. He says, I'm talking to you now in human covenant terms. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. We didn't go back and look at it, but if you looked in Genesis 22, he then goes on and says, and I, I promise to bless you and your seed. To Abraham and his seed, verse 16, where the promise is made. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one. If you look back in the Hebrew in Genesis 22, that word seed is singular, masculine. And to the seeds, as many, but, but as one, and to your seed, who is in Christ. What he's saying here is that when God entered into a covenant with Abraham, the covenant we've talked about, he entered into it with Abraham as the representative on behalf of the nation that was going to come from him. But in him, down the line, there was a seed. One seed that was going to come ultimately from his loins and Sarah's womb. And that seed that was going to come from him, and if you look at Matthew, you can see it traced on down. And ultimately, that seed that's born is conceived in a young girl named Mary without the help of her 
intended husband. It is the Spirit of God conceiving in her womb, in her human womb, the seed of God in the flesh of a woman. And when he grows up, of course, as Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of his purpose is to go and hang on that cross. And when he did that, he cut. Remember, the tribes or the families would have, they wouldn't all cut their bodies. They might do that to mark that they were in it. But they wouldn't all go through the ceremony. There was a representative that did it on behalf of each one of them. But it was just as binding, it was just as fulfilling, it was just as much a commitment to not only every member in the tribe, listen to me, alive then, but to everyone that would ever be born in that family or that tribe. Because the representatives cut that covenant. And so on the cross, what Jesus did is He cut a new version a completed full version of what God cut with Abraham in Genesis 15 and 17. He cut the fulfilled version and the representatives of that covenant cutting ceremony were God the Father and God the Son. And that covenant is only as strong as the obedience of the two that cut the covenant together. So the covenant that you and I have with God through Christ is a covenant that wasn't cut by you and me with Him because we failed. The security of the covenant, the strength of this covenant isn't based on how faithful you are to it or I am to it. It's based on how faithful The Son is to the Father, and the Father is to the Son. And you and I get in on it because we've been joined to the one. We're part of the family that He entered into the covenant for. We can't get into this story, but if you look in the story of David and Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth was was the son of Saul, who was David's enemy. But Saul's had a son whose name was Jonathan. And Jonathan had a son whose name was Mephibosheth. And David entered into a blood covenant with Jonathan. Jonathan's killed in battle. And once David becomes king, he goes to seek out Mephibosheth. And when he finds him, he's lame in both of his legs because the nurse, when she was heard that David was king, dropped him in the urgency to flee and run. And his legs were broken. And he was never healed, so he couldn't walk. He had to be. He was totally helpless. And David, once he becomes king, says he sent out troops to find Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was scared he was going to find him to kill him, like all the rest of his family was killed. But when David found him, he brings him into the palace. And Mephibosheth says, "What do you want with me? I'm a dead dog." That's how you and I felt when we came to Christ. We're dirty, rotten sinners. But David didn't listen to any of that. He says, no, you sit him at my table because he's going to eat as a member of my family because I made a covenant with his father who is dead now and this boy wasn't even born when I entered into that covenant. But I honor the covenant, blood covenant I made with his father. And our God honors the blood covenant that we made with Christ. And you and I are partakers of that covenant. And when Jesus says, this is my blood the blood of the new covenant, that's the covenant that he's talking about. 
And when we come together now, we come to celebrate and remember not just that He died for us, but He died for us to enter into a blood covenant for our sake. He didn't need it. He did it as our representatives before a holy God so that we could be joined to Him, so we could be His sons and His daughters, so we could have access to Him anytime, day or night, because He walked through that bloody way. He made that way. And the Bible says in Hebrews 10 and 9 that here's a new way, a living way, that you and I walk through. Not the way of blood that's been shed, but the way of grace. And it is as certain, it is as certain as, as, and that's why God did it. It is as certain as the faithfulness of the Son is to the Father and the Father is to a Son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We can't begin to express to you our gratitude. And Father, what we've heard this morning in some ways is just overwhelming but help it to sink in. That we've literally been joined to you and everything that you have is ours, but everything we have is yours. Our liabilities are now yours. You've committed that you will take care of us and provide for us, but all our assets are yours. But Father, all your assets are ours and all your liabilities are ours. The only liability that you have, you don't owe any money. You have no debt. The only liability you have is your commitment to carry out, to to honor the covenant that you've made through your son on that cross. Father, today help us as we get ready to leave from here in a little while. Help us as we now prepare to partake of this table that's a reminder the body and blood that entered into this covenant. As we prepare now, Father, to take this meal together, this communion meal as a remembrance, as a celebration of the covenant that you've entered into with us by cutting it with your son on that cross. We thank you for what you've done, Father. Help us to really grasp in our hearts what you've done for us. In Jesus' name.